I think today we can say with credibility that we have kept 1.5 degrees within reach, but its pulse is weak. And it will only survive if we keep our promises, if we translate commitments into rapid action, and if we deliver on the expectations set out in this Glasgow Climate Pact to increase ambition to 2030 and beyond. That's what it sounded like on Saturday in Glasgow, Scotland, when the United Nations International Climate Conference, or COP26, as they called it, came to a close. Six years ago in Paris, these countries agreed they needed to worry about climate change. But in Glasgow, the UN was supposed to actually get serious and start moving beyond pledges to action. Scientists are telling us that if countries and industries don't actually make major cuts right now to how we use coal, oil and gas, plus tackle other forms of pollution that warm up the Earth's temperature, then the results will be catastrophic for people. The COP26 agreement wasn't completely what activists wanted. After all, the final agreement watered down the phasing out of coal because India objected. But there were some positive signs, too. So now the questions remain. Will it be enough? Does it even matter what Canada does? And how can the government help support tens of thousands of people who work in the energy sector in this country who could lose their jobs? And what will it take to change the way we heat our homes, buy cars, and travel? In the end, what each of us voluntarily do, if that's what we're relying on, we're fried. Um, that this has to be a collective uh, project and that the speed and scale of what's now required has to be state-led. And that means that this is an inherently political project. So the most important thing you can do is in fact political. It's to make abundantly clear to all of your political leaders that you want them in emergency mode. I'm Ellen Bessner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Monday, November the 15th, 2021. Welcome to the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Seth Klein comes from a family of peace activists. His father was a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War, which is why the family moved to Canada. And his mother, Bonnie Cher Klein, is a noted documentary filmmaker and disability rights activist. His sister, Naomi, is also an internationally known author. And Seth is a policy analyst, a professor, and he now runs the Climate Emergency Unit of the David Suzuki Foundation. He's also written a new book. It's called A Good War, Mobilizing Canada for the Climate Emergency. And he uses that word specifically, emergency. His book suggests the smartest thing Canada could do is for our leaders to mobilize the country just like happened during the Second World War. Coming up, Seth Klein will be here to talk about the COP26 conference, what it meant, and what you can do. But first, here's what's making news elsewhere in Canada right now. I'm Anne Dublin in Toronto, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like. It was an exciting week for Ruben Sinclair. The Vancouver area man is 110 years old, soon to be 111. He's certainly Canada's oldest living Jewish veteran of the Second World War. And this past week, he was honoured for Remembrance Day at Vancouver's Talmatora Elementary School and then by the Royal Canadian Legion. Sinclair was born to a Jewish farming family in Lipton, Saskatchewan in 1911. And when the war broke out, he left behind his bride, Ida, and a good, secure government job, 
and he joined the Air Force. He was 29 years old. He's been telling his story now and doing media interviews with young people around Canada. Sinclair told the students he wanted to go overseas when he joined up, but the Air Force discovered he had flat feet, so that couldn't happen. Instead, he spent the war years in the control towers of Air Force bases, including in Saskatchewan, training pilots how to take off and land in the dark. Sinclair still lives in his own home with help. His wife passed away 25 years ago. The couple were generous philanthropists and community volunteers. Seth Klein didn't attend the Glasgow conference in person, but he was watching it carefully from his home in Vancouver. And Canada made some important pledges. So was COP26 a success? Seth Klein joins me now from Vancouver. So, Seth, we're talking in the, the confluence of two very timely events. One is Remembrance Day and one is the end of the COP26 climate talks. How perfect a storm or parallel for your point of view about why there is an emergency in the climate, no? My book is about mobilizing Canada for the climate emergency, but it is entirely structured around lessons from the Second World War. And, um, you know, as, a, as someone who, who cut their teeth politically in the peace and disarmament movement in the 80s, uh, much to the surprise of myself and many, I, I wrote a war story, uh, as you did. And, um, uh, and it gave me new appreciation for the role of Canada in the war, a new appreciation, uh, not just for what happened on uh, the battlefront, but the book in particular draws on the experience of Canada on the home front and this incredible ramp up of military production to meet that emergency moment uh, as, a, as an inspiration for what we now have to do in the face of the climate emergencies. You mentioned it as a climate emergency, and I think that's one of the key things that we should talk about, and that is the terminology. Words are important. Well, I certainly consciously use the terms emergency and crisis rather than uh, uh, the climate change is a technical term and I mean, it describes what's happening, but there's something about it that's a bit sanitized and, um, and doesn't convey the scope uh, of the gravity of the crisis that we face. Um, so I think, that, I think that language matters. Uh, after the summer we've had, there can be no doubt we face an emergency. Um, uh, you know, here in my province, uh, it, there was a week in June in which we lost 600 people in a week, um, mostly lower income, isolated seniors. That means it was the most deadly weather event in Canadian history, by the way. And and British Columbia lost in that single week about uh, about a third as many people as we've lost in the entire pandemic. Uh, Elsewhere in the country, it was was droughts and and flooding uh, and wildfires and torrential storms. And this is just a taste of what's to come. This isn't the new normal. Um, uh, it's gonna get worse. And, and even you know, when we think about the experience we've all had in the pandemic, at no time in Canada did it disrupt our food and water systems the way the climate crisis will. You know, your book came out as the pandemic hit. Right. And, you know, there are a lot of things in your book about leadership and about mobilization and retooling of, of companies, but, um, Maybe we should fast forward now to today where that happened. Yes. What you want it to happen happened in the pandemic. Um, In many respects, our pandemic experience just reinforces the thesis of my book, which is that when leaders 
actually recognize emergencies for what they are, remarkable things are possible. And the speed and scale of what becomes unleashed can surprise us. And all kinds of rules get thrown out the window, right? The, look at the extraordinary public spending that we saw in response to the pandemic, um, just as it was in the war, just it was, as it was in the pandemic. And as I think we now need to do for the climate emergency, although uh, interestingly, not as not at the same level as 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 we did the first year of the pandemic. I'd be happy with just you know a quarter of that. I would do the job just fine. Okay, let's break down a little bit. COP evaluate the importance of COP for our listeners. Is it enough? Uh, the COP story is mixed. Um, there was progress made um, before this COP meeting. Uh, when you tallied up all the national commitments. Uh, from the countries, uh, their plans would have resulted in global temperature increase of uh, 2.7 degrees, which is terrifying. Uh, now, after the COP, if you tally it up, it's somewhere between 2 and 2.4 degrees. Um, that's progress. It, it's also still catastrophic. Um, and so we still have a lot of work to do pressing all of our governments and we as Canadians are responsible for our government and we have to do what we have to do knowing that millions of other good people of, of goodwill around the world are having the same conversations with their governments. Um, you asked specifically about Canada's commitment. So I don't know that we heard something new at COP. The prime minister went and reiterated some important promises that he made in the, in the recent election, which is a hard cap on oil and gas sector emissions. I'm gonna interrupt you. He also said they're not going to give any more money to offshore oil and gas overseas oil and gas companies, which- Yes, that was also, uh, that was new actually, you're right. Um, and that was a win. Uh, that was a result of a lot of public pressure, by the way, from a lot of groups who've pushed hard on that. Um, the fine print remains to be seen on it around how they structure it. Is it, you know, is there some wiggle room if something is claimed to be abated, like if there's some carbon capture and storage or whatever? So we will see. Um, and I would point out that the public subsidies for our own domestic fossil fuel activity still far, far outstrips what we finance in other countries, but it was something. Um, but I wanna come back to the hard cap on oil and gas. Uh, and Trudeau clarified that he means a cap as of now, not that we're gonna set some new cap five years from now. He means this, that the current emissions will be the cap and, we, and they will decline from here. That is significant. Because for the longest time, the federal liberals would not say that. That, that was the elephant in the room. You know, they, they talked a good game on lowering emissions on a bunch of fronts, but they would not name production and the emissions that come from oil and gas, even though that's a quarter of Canada's emissions. But the, see, the thing is, most of what's being extracted is being exported to somewhere else where it will be burned and put up in the atmosphere. And but... They're not counting that. They're not talking about capping that because that conveniently counts towards somebody else's emissions. <laughs> we conveniently pretend, despite the fact that we are peddlers of this deadly substance, we are the fourth and sixth largest producers of oil and gas in the world. We don't count most of that towards our own emissions. Um, but this is an important piece of COP that happened coming back to COP, which is the F word got used. 
by which we mean fossil fuels. Um, six years ago, when we got the Paris Agreement, people will find this kind of surprising. The words fossil fuels never appear in the Paris Agreement. The words coal, oil, and gas never appear in the Paris Agreement. It's strictly about cutting emissions and it pretends, it likes to pretend that fossil fuels are just some abstract thing, even though they are the source of 80% of the world's emissions. Well, the COP agreement is naming fossil fuels finally. What can people do besides the big things like, you know, vote? Well, so, and people often uh, think, what, what does it matter what I do personally? And then what does it matter what Canada does? Because Canada is small, both. Both, I think, are these voices that we have in our head all the time. Um, so first of all, in the end, what each of us voluntarily do, if that's what we're relying on, we're fried. Um, that this has to be a collective uh, project and that the speed and scale of what's now required has to be state-led. And that means that this is an inherently political project. So the most important thing you can do is in fact political. It's to make abundantly clear to all of your political leaders that you want them in emergency mode. Uh, and, and if they're not prepared to be the leaders, we need them to be re replace them. That said, there are important things we can and should do at our, at our household levels. We all need to change how we're getting around and we all need to fuel swap our homes, um, particularly at the point of, 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 of uh, replacement. Right. So when you next need a new vehicle, you should not buy a fossil fuel vehicle. When you need to replace your furnace or your hot water heater, don't replace it with gas. That is the time at which you, you should switch to electric. Um, but, uh, and that needs to happen urgently, but, and we need government supports to encourage it. People know what to do. The technical solutions are there. Right. So I guess the thing is, no more flights to Florida. Stop, you know, buying big RVs and, and stop, you know, taking cruises. And, and this is something that that hits our listeners. Stop mm -hmm. driving to shul. Things like that. Stop wasting. Well, the driving, food. I mean, when we say the technical solutions are there, the technical solutions for our buildings are there. The technical solutions for the bulk of how we get around, certainly within our own communities, are there. Um, the, the, the one piece that remains challenging is the, is the, longer, uh, the longer travel, by, certainly by, by, by ship and by, and by plane. Um, and we are going to have to do less of that. You can find out more about Seth Klein's work and his book at sethkline.ca. The link is in our show notes. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily. It's sponsored by Metropia, integrity, community, quality, and customer care. Today's listener shout out goes to Cheryl Sepler of Richmond Hill and your Mahjong group. And we'll close the episode with a clip from the short video called Four Hopeful Lessons. It's produced by the David Suzuki Foundation, where Seth Klein works. Marker number three government shift from voluntary policies to mandatory measures. In World War II, the transformation of our economy wasn't voluntary, it was required. But on climate, we encourage change, we incentivize change, we offer rebates, we send price signals. But what we have decidedly not done is require change. By next year, no new buildings should be heated with fossil fuels. 
We should immediately ban the advertising of fossil fuel vehicles and gas stations, just like we did with cigarettes. And by 2025, it should be illegal to sell new combustion-powered vehicles. The Limud Toronto Festival takes place on Sunday, November 21st. Limud features educators, performers, authors, activists, and innovators from around the world. The Limud Festival of Jewish Learning celebrates creativity, diversity, inclusivity, and discussion. Everyone is welcome. All tickets to Limud are pay what you can. Learn more at limud.ca.